At some point, I stopped growing in the height direction. Sometime in my late teens, I hit six foot one, and it was the same when I measured on Wednesday, despite all my hunched computer usage. My doctor made a comment a few years back that at my age, it's growth in the other direction, the weight direction, that I need to start looking out for. At the time, I wondered if he had noticed something, if this was directed specifically at me, or if this was something he said to all the late 30-somethings. But it certainly stuck with me. I do try to prioritize exercise, especially since I switched from being a carpenter back to a student again, and spending so much of my day disembodied. Lent helps with the eating part. Green vegetables were no main feature in my household growing up, and while my family's diet these days is definitely much healthier, we typically take the 40 days of Lent to really put things into practice, to eat in a very deliberate way. Some years going vegan, this year, again, eating an anti-inflammatory diet, which means cutting out sugars and white flours, anything with a high glycemic index. I don't know if at Jesus' age, his early 30-somethings, if growth in the weight direction was as much of a concern. When I read over these scripture passages, it doesn't seem like Jesus was all that hung up on his body type or the proddings of his nutritionist. In fact, his miraculous 40-day fast doesn't seem to be the focal point at all, especially in light of the passages our electionary places alongside the Gospel of Luke. Another kind of growth seems of much greater concern. It's hard not to read these passages through the lens of current events. And indeed, there are those who say that this is an important part of biblical interpretation of hermeneutics, that our own historical experience can unlock aspects of meaning in the sacred texts that can otherwise go unnoticed. When I read the passages for Lent 1, all I see is Russia and Ukraine. Whether that's what it's saying is almost beside the point, because that's what I'm hearing. When you have come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess, and you possess it and settle in it. So begins the Deuteronomy passage. And then later, the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with a terrifying display of power and with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
Here we have a people who see a foreign land as their rightful inheritance, given by their God for them to settle and possess, full of resources, milk and honey, for them to exploit as they wish. The ability to expand into a new territory, to grow and fill it up with one's progeny, this is a mark of the power of their God, the chosenness of his people, the blessedness of a people he has chosen to exalt above all others. And what of the people already living in that land promised to Israel? What of the people displaced by this blessed growth? When I read these stories in Deuteronomy and Exodus, I can't help but think of those Palestinians in the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, whose houses are being demolished, whose children are being arrested or killed, because the state of Israel sees this land as its rightful territory, its inheritance. It's a dynamic that seems to be at work in Ukraine as well. In the fog of war, with all the disinformation and propaganda coming out of Russia, it's difficult to know just how deeply the Russian Orthodox Church is involved in their process of justification. But Russia clearly sees Ukrainian land as theirs by right. Russia is the blessed nation, too blessed not to expand, to grow into Crimea, into Ukraine, into Scandinavia, their peoples not being displaced, but liberated. And then we have what we call the West, those countries who understand that democracy is the true liberation, the political system that truly has a right to spread and grow across the planet. This is what you hear in addresses like Biden's State of the Union, this dialectic between Russian tyranny and Western democracy. But in the inflammation of war, we tend to ask questions later about this democracy we are spreading and whether we are not subjects of an oligarchy of our own, of government policies that skew towards the terrifying displays of the power of corporations, with the whole planet's milk and honey, water and oil theirs for the taking, and a growing number of vulnerable people not liberated but displaced. Coming out of the pandemic, the Western doctrine of endless economic growth is impossible to ignore. Whether it's coming from our provincial conservative or federal liberal leaders, the message is the same. We need to get our economy growing again. When the liberals recently asked Canadians for feedback on their upcoming budget, the questions were all, how best to get our economy growing again, not how best to improve Canadians' quality of life or how best to deal with the planet's limited resources. The assumption 
is that unlimited economic growth is itself the tide that lifts all ships. But this assumption obscures the land and the labor on which economies are based. In a finite world, our growth means the displacement of others, those less privileged, those in the global south, and taking climate change into account, the displacement of all future generations. There are economic models that seek a better balance between social, welfare, and resource use. Models like the donut economy that I'm sure many of you have come across and that I'm certainly not very qualified to promote. Also, we're almost a week into Lent and if I start thinking about donuts, I'll definitely be getting off track especially those ones from Lady Glaze in Belmont Village, which really are delicious. They make this one with like nougat or honeycomb on top, which if you haven't tried it, you definitely should. <clears throat> Anyways, I'd like to return instead to our scripture passages. to see if our New Testament texts offer an alternative to this idea of unchecked and unabashed colonial growth. Paul's letter to the Romans seems immediately to have another model in mind. For Paul, the convert from Judaism, salvation is no longer a covenant between a single nation and its God. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, he says. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For listeners less jaded by the ensuing colonial history of Christianity, these are such hopeful words. Neither Jew nor Greek, all are worthy of God's blessings. All are welcome to God's kingdom. But Paul's inclusive vision comes with a condition. You are welcome to God's kingdom as long as, quote, you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord. As Christianity spread, from the Mediterranean across Europe and eventually into the New World, this was the ultimatum presented to those peoples it encountered, pagans, Muslims, indigenous peoples, the difference between liberation or displacement. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, and those who don't are collateral damage. If there were Jews among Paul's audience in Rome, the true force and implication of these words would not have been lost on them. For this was a quote directly from their own scriptures, where the name of the Lord was not Jesus, but Yahweh. Paul is quoting from the prophet Joel, chapter 2, verse 32. 
Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The context here, the then that Joel is talking about, is the day of the Lord, Judah's ultimate apocalyptic triumph. It is one of the most chilling calls to violence in the Hebrew scriptures. And I'll read a little bit at length. This is Joel. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. For then, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will turn your deeds back upon your own heads swiftly and speedily. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare war. Stir up the warriors. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weaklings say, I am a warrior. So you shall know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. On that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah will flow with water. A fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the Wadi Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the people of Judah in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations I will avenge their blood, and I will not clear the guilty, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Lent isn't just a time to press pause on our contributions to Lady Glaze. It is a season of self-examination and repentance. It is a time to hold up to the light and to lament our own hypocrisy and the contradictions and tensions and imperfections, the humanness of our vision of the good, whether that's a societal vision of liberal democracy, an economic vision of capitalism, or a religious vision of monotheism. For there is such a tension and danger inherent in monotheism, 
which asserts that there is one universal God above all others, but conceives of this God in particular terms, so that instead of just God, it is the God of Jacob, or it is Jesus, the God of Paul. Lent is a time to step out of the kingdom, to wander out of the promised land, out of the rushing current of our world-building project, and into the bleak wilderness where we can ask questions first, where our blood can cool, where the inflammation of war can subside, and we can recall that God is the world's savior, not us. Lent is that bleak wilderness where we can see with clarity that the path forward requires not that our will be done, but God's will. That sometimes we must limit our own growth so that others may thrive. For truly universal salvation isn't that day when everyone has the same name on their lips, but when everyone is reconciled to one another. This is the vision not of Joel, but of the Jewish prophet Micah, who says, He shall judge between many peoples and shall arbitrate between strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall all sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Amen.